Dr. Schilling Law has a list of credits that would rival a short book. I failed to print out her Vita, however. So I'm hoping that at our reception, you will find out for yourself some of the many wonderful things that she's read, done, been. And will you please help me welcome this morning Dr. Susan Grace Schillinglaw. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you, Ron, for greeting me so graciously this morning. Um, I am from California, but I am revisiting the South. I went to school in, or what passes for the South, North Carolina, um, University of North Carolina, so it's always nice to come back. Um, Got at Wake Forest for a while as well. So um, thank you for greeting me so warmly. I'm always shocked when people say hello so frequently, and you know, one's not prepared for that even when you know you are used to it long ago. Um, well, I've been very fortunate to be able to travel with Steinbeck, literally and figuratively, for the past 22 years. Um, I was director of the Steinbeck Center at San Jose State. Um, beginning in 1987, and I came to this without any training because we hadn't read Steinbeck at University of North Carolina. Uh, And I was sort of taken in and learned to really become a California citizen um, by reading Steinbeck um, and appreciating him, talking to people. But I think the best part of my career with Steinbeck has been traveling um, to places like this. Uh, the, <clears throat> and the reason I'm here specifically is that the National Endowment for the Arts sponsors a big read, and Grapes of Wrath is one of the books on that big read. And the purpose of the big read is, and they're actually studying this, um, to have people participate in book discussions uh, and participate in community, um, you know, uh, well, Sometimes they have Depression-era feasts, if you could call it a feast, and uh, various activities and communities, because I think that if people read together and come together, and I suppose that's what this church represents too, they'll be better citizens, they'll be more involved, they'll, um, they'll care about one another, they'll vote, they'll participate. And they're actually studying that to see if reading together um, helps create a sense of community. So I, if you haven't read The Grapes of Wrath, I suppose my point in being here is to um, spark your interest. So you say, I've got to read this big book. Um, and it certainly is a timely book um, at this particular moment when people are losing jobs and being forced from homes. And you who live in Louisiana certainly saw what happened in Katrina, obviously, and that's really the story of the Grapes of Wrath um, transposed to another time because the great, one of the great um, strengths of this book, and I think the reason that people are drawn to it again and again and again is because it's a story of migration, really, a story about people anywhere, whether it's California or whether it's, um, you know, Africa or New Orleans. It's about people losing their homes and being forced out and, you know, wandering. So, and what, how do you survive? Um, It's really becoming unhomed and finding a home, um, a place, and a new family. 
So I think it's a very compelling book. I love talking about it. I love reading it. Um, but today, I'm not going to talk specifically, uh, well, I'm going to talk about the Grapes of Wrath, but more um, pointedly, I'm going to talk about what the title is, John Steinbeck's Spiritual Streak, which may sound a bit odd. It sounds like he's a piece of bacon, and he has a streak of, <laughs> of spirit in him. Um, and in some ways, that's true. I got the title from his third wife, Elaine Steinbeck, um, when I ask her, so pe- when I travel or when I teach Steinbeck, I'm always asked, so what was his, what were his religious beliefs? Did he care? Did he, you know, what, what sort of um, religious affiliations did he have? And she answered, well, you know, John always had a spiritual streak that never left. Um, so I'm going to try to talk about that for a little bit and tell you what that means um, in his life and in the book. Uh, just a little bit about his background. I don't know how much you know about him. He was definitely a California novelist. He was raised in Salinas, a farming community about a half hour from the sea, born in 1902. Uh, he loved the um, hills and mountains and valleys around Salinas. It's a lovely area, one of the richest agricultural land, um, valleys in California. Your lettuce probably comes from Salinas. Your strawberries probably come from Salinas or Watsonville close by. Uh, that he loved about the area. He really didn't like his hometown very much. And if you read The Grapes of Wrath, he tends to extend that to all of California and say everybody who's selfish and doesn't want to help others um, and extend a hand. That's Salinas thinking for him. <laughs> so that's kind of what he thought of his hometown. Um, he was brought up an Episcopalian, and uh, he rejected the Episcopalian um, faith fairly quickly. Um, and here's an example of perhaps why that happens. Is a story he told in various contexts. Um, he was an acolyte at St. Paul's Church in Salinas when he was a young man, and he tells this story. Once in a choir stall under the lectern, a dreadful thing happened. I wore the lace and carried the cross and sang a beefy soprano. Once the bishop was officiating, a nice old man, hairless as a boiled onion, but also glowed with the rays of holiness. So it was that, stunned with inspiration, I set the cross in its socket, on the end of the processional and forgot to throw the brass latch that held it. At the reading of the second lesson, I saw with horror the heavy brass cross sway and crash on that holy, hairless head. The bishop went down like a pole-axed cow, and I lost the lace to a boy who couldn't sing as well, a boy named Skunkfoot Hill. Well, that probably had something to do with his um, lack of enthusiasm for the Episcopal Church. But in fact, Steinbeck really um, resisted organized religion and the sense that you had to believe certain things. He really resisted rigidity more than anything. Um, and some throughout his books, you'll find that rigid people, people who can't ad- adapt, people who can't change, um, sometimes those people um, have, uh, he reserves fine scorn for them. But here's another story about his um, time in church. 
um, and it was published as a little booklet called The Wrath of John Steinbeck. And the occasion was that one of his college friends invited him home to Berkeley, and um, his mother, when they got up on Sunday morning, said, well, you must come to church with us. And so John went to church and listened to the preacher, who was the sermon that morning, was the soul is a creature that wants food in order to its satisfaction um, as truly as the body. So the preacher went on and on about the soul wanting food. And at some point, uh, John Steinbeck stood up in the middle of the sermon and yelled, Yes, you all look satisfied here while outside the world begs for a crust of bread or a chance to earn it. Feed the body and the soul will take care of itself. Well, you can imagine the mother was somewhat embarrassed at this outburst by her guest. And so the mother was um, blanching. And uh, the Steinbeck's friend reported that <clears throat> the minister was visibly disturbed and invited uh, the young man, John Steinbeck, to the pulpit. Young man, if you think you can preach a better sermon than I, come on up here and let us hear you. To which um, young John Steinbeck, he was 19, said, I don't think much of preaching. Go on, you're getting paid for it. Which didn't endear him undoubtedly to the preacher. So that little pamphlet is called The Wrath of John Steinbeck. So that doesn't say tell you much about... I suppose John Steinbeck's spiritual streak, it says something about his rebellious streak and his restlessness with organized um, religion. But I think it does lead us into what is meant by uh, Steinbeck's spirituality. And at the heart of it, I think, is empathy and a feeling that um, one has to concern oneself or certainly look at those who... uh, are marginalized, those who are left out, um, the people. Uh, uh, People who read Steinbeck feel a real sense of that he speaks for them. Um, And I think that's what he tried to do. He tried to speak for those who didn't have a voice of their own, Um, like in The Grapes of Wrath, the migrants to California. Um, So I want to tell you a little bit about what that means with regard to reading the book, which I expect you all to read once you... Get home. Uh, so, and when I give talks in libraries and such, as I'm going to do this week in northern Louisiana, I always start out, I play Bruce Springsteen's The Ghost of Tom Joad because he did an album based on the book and talked about why Tom Joad, the spirit of Tom Joad, survives today, why we should still care about Tom Joad. But what that song um, speaks to, I think, is a sense of participation. And this church, which is so full of music, um, music draws people together. And um, that's what Springsteen knows, and that's what Steinbeck knows. And indeed, it's at the heart of what he wanted people to feel when they read this book. Um, Because he says again and again about what he wanted people to take out of it. I've done my damnedest, he says, to rip the reader's nerves to rags. I don't want him satisfied. I tried to write this book the way lives are being lived not the way books are written. Throughout, I've tried to make the reader participate in the actuality. What he takes from it will be scaled entirely on his own depth or hollowness. There are five layers to this book, and a reader will find as many as he can, and he won't find any more than he has in himself. Well, that's certainly a challenge. 
um, to read with great attention. But I think that word participate was particularly important um, as he was thinking about this book, as he was writing in this book. And he wants readers not to read passively. Um, He said, I want it to be a slow, plodding book, but I want you to feel what it's like to be poor, to be out on the road, to have a dream of California, to lose um, family members, as, and to feel that pain and agony. Um, so it really is something, it means full engagement, full t- participation, and really feeling um, what this book is about. You can't read it passively. You have to engage. You have to feel. Um, and, you know, he says that, uh, that that's the essence of the Grapes of Wrath. <clears throat> I think another thing I speak to a lot is chapter 25, where the title of the book is, and it comes from, and I, I suppose that, I'm sorry, it's chapter 23, and I suppose this chapter gets to the essence of what he means by engaging people and feeling, um, because he talks about music. It came about in the camps along the road, on the ditch banks beside the streams, under the sycamore, that the storyteller grew into being, so the people gathered in the low firelight to hear the gifted ones, and they listened while tales were told, and their participation made the stories great. And then he talks about music, and participating in music makes the stories come alive. So that's, I suppose, what for him became um, spiritual. Uh, it's it's the sense of what happens when people get together. This book moves from I to we. It's about a guy who gets out of jail, Tom Joad. He says the only purpose in life is just putting one foot in front of the other. I'm just trying to get by. I'm just trying to survive. He joins his family, of course, on the way to California. And he has to learn something about um, just getting by isn't enough. You've got to care for somebody else. So participation. Um, the way you see that sense of participation in the book is, of course, through the characters. And I think what Tom Joad learns from Casey, uh, the preacher in the book, is essential to his growth as a person and to what this book is about. Because it's really about um, how do we listen to other people, how do we you know, change, how do we learn. And Tom Joad, it's really about the education of Tom Joad in one way um, and what that education means. Jim Casey, much ink has been spilled, especially by um, high school students, about Jim Casey, whose initials are J.C., is very much like Jesus Christ. And he's a kind of Christ figure because he goes into the wilderness and wrestles with his religion. He's sacrificed um, for a cause um, at the end. But I think more important than just seeing him as a sort of an abstract symbol of Christ is to see that he's a man who's struggling, who really doesn't know how to define what religion is, what meaning is. He comes into the book singing this song. Again, that's he's singing. And I can't sing very well, so I'll sing it for you, but, you know, excuse my voice. I don't sing a beefy soprano. Um, Yes, sir, that's my Savior, Jesus is my Savior, Jesus is my Savior now. On the levels, not the devil, Jesus is my Savior now. Well, even in my, you know, bad um, singing, you can see that it's, you know, religious context put on a very popular sermon. Yes, sir, that's my baby. Um, No, sir, I don't mean maybe. That's... That sense of his, you know, the popular song and the religious context 
is really about what the essence of what Casey's about. He's wrestling with, am I, am I a preacher? Am I not a preacher? Um, and he keeps saying throughout the book when people want him to give sermons, no, I'm not a preacher, I'm not a preacher, I'm something else. Uh, and I think really what Casey's story is about is less being a Christ figure than being a man who's trying to figure out answers, trying to figure out what gives meaning to life. And I think he's very wrestling with it, trying to work on, you know, what, um, in what ways does life have meaning, is how he teaches Tom to wrestle with his own questions and answers. And I think one of the book, things the book asks you to do is kind of wrestle with your own beliefs, um, just as Casey does. Uh, he does talk about holiness. He does talk about faith in this book. Um, and in a very, I think, um, meaningful and profound way. Here's one of his speeches. Uh, given at Grandpa's funeral. I got to thinking, only it wasn't thinking. It was deeper than thinking. I got to thinking how we was holy when we was one thing, and mankind was holy when it was one thing. It only got unholy when miserable little fellow got the bit in his teeth and run off his own way, kicking and dragging and fighting. Fellow like that busts the holiness. But when we're all working together, not one fellow for another fellow, but one fellow kind of harnessed to the whole shebang, that's right, that's holy. And then I got to thinking, I don't even know what I mean by holy. He paused, but the bowed heads stayed down, for they'd been trained like dogs to rise at the amen signal. I can't say no grace like I used to. I'm glad of the holiness of breakfast. I'm glad there's love here, that's all. I mean, you can see the struggle in that very speech, but... He's working towards something that the book embraces, which is we. When you're all harnessed together, something, something great happens than if you try to make it alone. And that's what Tom Joad learns from Casey. And so that's one of the great movements in this book, um, Tom learning from Casey that you've got you to believe in something. And they, all, they both believe vaguely in the cause of the people um, and their suffering and try to dedicate themselves to improving the life of ordinary people. But there's another movement in the book, and I think Steinbeck's, when he talks about participation in this book and what that means, I think being involved with the characters is not only Tom and Casey, but also Ma and Rose of Sharon. Um, that there is, he kind of genders the whole discussion of what it means to, um, to live and participate. And if Tom learns sort of political activism through Casey and um, lending one's um, beliefs to a larger cause. I think um, Ma teaches Rose of Sharon to um, quit whining, as she does, uh, and participate in something larger than herself. A lot of male critics have written about Rose of Sharon and how much, really, what a useless character she is, basically, <laughs> because she spends the book whining um, about she uh, is pregnant and she, her husband abandons her, and she's worried about the health of her unborn child. My feeling is she's got, a, she's got good reason to whine, and, you know, she, it's pretty tough if you're worried about your child and you don't have anybody to take care of and you're uh, on your own. But Ma tries to get her to see that even though life is very difficult for her, and she is alone, she has been abandoned, that there's something larger than just her own problems and her own um, misery. 
And so Ma's speeches to Rose of Sharon, I think, are another kind of lesson, spiritual lesson in this book, and they're about not being self-absorbed. So a couple of these speeches. Rose of Sharon, unkempt and sleepy-eyed, crawled out of the tent. Ma turned from the cornmeal she was measuring in fistfuls. She looked at the girl's wrinkled, dirty dress at her frizzled, uncombed hair. You gotta clean up, she said briskly. Go right over and clean up. You got a clean dress. I washed it. Get your hair combed. Get the seeds out of your eyes. Ma was excited. Rose of Sharon said sullenly, I don't feel good. I wished Connie would come. I don't feel like doing nothing without Connie. Ma turned full around on her. The yellow cornmeal clung to her hands and wrists. Rosa Sharn, she said sternly, you get upright. You just been moping enough. There's a ladies' committee coming, and the family ain't going to be frawny when they get here. But I don't feel good. Ma advanced on her mealy hands held out. Get, Ma said. There's times when how you feel got to be kept to yourself. I'm going to vomit, Rosa Sharon whined. Well, go and vomit. Of course you're going to vomit. Everybody does. Get over it and then clean up and wash your legs and put on them shoes of yarn and braid your, and braid your hair. I mean, <laughs> that's a pretty good lesson And just, you know, stand up. Um, let's let's um, hold things inside how you feel and let's just um, confront um, what's going to confront others um, without whining. And a few pages later... Uh, Ma says to her, <clears throat> when Rosa Sharon is again complaining, Rosa Sharon, you stop picking at yourself. You're just teasing yourself up to cry. I don't know what's come at you. Our folks ain't never did that. They took what come to them dry-eyed. I bet that Connie gave you all them notions. He's just too big for his overalls. And then she said sternly, Rosa Sharon, you're just one person, and there's a lot of other folks. You get to your proper place. I know people built themselves up with sin till they figured there was big mean shucks in the sight of the Lord. But Ma, no, just shut up and get to work. You ain't big enough or mean enough to worry God much. And I'm going to give you the back of my hand if you don't stop picking at yourself. Um, <laughs> those are maybe pretty, maybe that's tough love. But I think what she's telling Rosa Sharon is that there's others to worry about other than yourself. And of course the book ends with Rosa Sharon's great gesture to give um, of herself to another person. There's this great symbol of love and empathy and charity that ends this book. And Rosa Sharon gives her breast to a man who's dying um, that they meet um, by the side of the road. And uh, Ma just looks at Rosa Sharon at that last moment of the novel, and Rosa Sharon looks at her mother and then offers him her breast. Now, she may not have any milk, the man is, is starving, and it may be a futile gesture, but at least you can try to save another person. At least you can show that person that he is not alone. And so it's this, it's this great survival symbol that ends the book. Um, and I, I think Steinbeck is showing through that and through Ma's lessons that um, empathy and concern doesn't necessarily need to be political engagement, but it can simply be um, outreach to another person in need. And I think if that's certainly a spiritual lesson that he's trying to show through this book, a great lesson in empathy and in concern. So 
I think that that sense of participation um, we see through the characters, these two great mentoring relations in the book. Of course, there are other aspects to this book, and I can't go over it all. You'd be here until 1.30 or so. Um, And uh, I'm sure you don't want that. But uh, when he says there are five layers in this book, I always throw that out to my students to say, okay, if he's trying to tell five different stories, what are they? How do you see this book as telling, you know, five different stories? And we play with that a little bit. Um, I I think that one of the stories is um, sort of ecological, and he tries to tell what's happening to people on the land, people in place. when Oklahoma is experiences a drought and the dust storms blow through Oklahoma and people lose their land, uh, what do you do? How do you establish a new relation to place? Steinbeck cared a lot about how people live in place. Place wasn't to him just background, but it was feeling deeply rooted to where you are, where you belong, where you know the history, where you know the plants and animals. Uh, he saw people as another species to be understood in the places where they lived. Uh, and so uh, the Joads being displaced uh, have to figure out what California is all about, and that's, that's not easy for them. Uh, and I think he evokes a sense of place. One of the great strengths of his work is that evoking a sense of place and how we relate to place. He loved California deeply um, and felt very much connected there. And at the heart of the book, I think, is a kind of denunciation of what's happening in this place that he loves so much. The great possibility that one believes is a, is the history of California, is this dream and this great sense of possibility, this great sense of beauty, the sense of the Edenic acres. People, The way California used to advertise itself in the 30s was orange groves and grapes for that, you know, you just couldn't help but fall into Eden when you went into California. And that's, of course, what the, what the Joads expect. Um, and chapter 25, I think, is at the heart of this sense, sensibility of what happens um, in California. He says, The spring is beautiful in California. Valleys in which the fruit blossoms are fragrant pink and white waters in a shallow sea. Then the first tendrils of the grapes swelling from the old gnarled vines cascade down to cover the trunks. The full green hills are round and soft as breasts. And on the level vegetable lands are the mile-long rows of pale green lettuce and spindly little cauliflowers and the gray-green unearthly artichoke plants. So he evokes that sense of California abundance and possibility and the whole reason that the Joads come west. And then he talks about, but what's happened? What happens when we don't have empathy for people, when the state simply turns its back on collectively on the migrants who have who swarmed into California in the 30s. And I think the book becomes a call, both ecologically and politically, to not turn your back on those who suffer. Because in California, and this really happened, um, to keep the price of oranges up, they dumped oranges into the river. To keep the price of potatoes up, they dumped them into the river, burned piles of oranges when people were starving on the roads. And that... Um, makes Steinbeck very angry. The people came with nets to fish for potatoes in the river, and the guards held them back. They came in rattling cars to get the dumped oranges, but the kerosene is sprayed. 
and they stand still and watch potatoes float by, listening to the screaming pigs being killed in a ditch and covered with quicklime, watch the mountains of oranges slop down to a putrefying ooze. And in the eyes of the people, there's a failure. And in the eyes of the hungry, there's a growing wrath. And in the souls of the people, the grapes of wrath are filling and growing heavy, growing heavy for the vintage. So, you know, that suggests revolution. What will happen if you turn your back on the people who are suffering? Um, Maybe they'll get together and protest. Uh, And so the book has that sort of political and ecological strain to it, um, which I think is also about um, participation. It has other levels, too, and I'll, you know, maybe you can start a book group here and figure out all the levels. But one of them is biblical. Uh, And I think this also speaks to Steinbeck's, you know, overarching message here. It's It's really retelling the story of Exodus. Um, about what happens when people are banished from one land and have to travel to the promised land and what the promised land gives them um, and how fully they can find, um, redeem themselves, find a new life in um, the promised land. And And I think that's one of the reasons that the story is so compelling in so many contexts because it's not just about Okies in California. After all, this that's past. The Depression is gone. Uh, all the Okies got jobs once World War II started. The problem was if Grapes of Wrath had been published two years later, it wouldn't have been made the impact that it did. Um, but the story keeps you know, being retold, and I think that's one of the reasons that people in many, many countries have embraced this book. It was... It was um, translated in China a year after it was published. It was translated in Russia um, a year after it was published in 1940. Um, Michael Moore, um, I don't know what you think of Michael Moore, but he's urging everybody to read The Grapes of Wrath um, and accompanying his new movie about um, capitalism. Um, There was a great sense in the 30s that capitalism had failed people. Maybe there's a great sense now that capitalism has failed people. But it's, te- keeps, it's a story that constantly is being retold. And so I think that's another reason that this book um, survives. So let me close um, with uh, coming back to this whole notion of Steinbeck and his spiritual streak. Um, it was greater than just this book. Um, he was always attempting to find answers beyond sort of just physical experience. He had a yearning towards some kind of spiritual understanding of life. And he said to, two years after The Grapes of Wrath was published, he said to his editor, Pascal Covici, maybe you can find some vague theology that will give you hope. Not that I have lost any hope. All the goodness and heroisms will rise up again and then be cut down and rise up. It isn't that evil thing wins. It never will, but that it doesn't die. But Steinbeck had an abiding hope in people's ability to survive, to be generous-spirited, to care, to have empathy, to participate, um, and he never lost that. And so I think that's part of his spiritual streak. Um, and another part of it was his, um, his great love of the Bible and other books, I think great great religious texts. Um, he in 1952, ten years some ten years after the Grapes of Wrath, um, a friend of his who'd helped him work Viva Zapata into a film 
gave, um, was leaving Paris, and Steinbeck handed him a package and said, Here, I'm giving you the source material for all stories. You'll have no problems after this writing anything. And the source, the book he'd given him was the Bible. Um, so he kept coming back to the Bible, and the Grapes of Wrath is full of the, of the rhythms of the King James Version of the Bible. Of course, he was steeped in it, as was everyone else who write, wrote at the beginning of the century. Um, he thought of doing a life of Christ from the four Gospels. So religion was something he kept coming back to, but it was the stories, it was the message, it was the meaning of religious texts that he wanted to get the heart of. So I think The Grapes of Wrath and other books he wrote are at heart um, very much about spirit. And so his spiritual streak was, was very wide and very deep. Thank you, um, and I hope you all read the book. So <laughs> take care.